It's December 2nd, 2022, and this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Glad to be speaking to you once again. We've been away for a little while, but we certainly left you a lot of podcasts to listen to. I think, my goodness, at last count, I think there were 41 podcasts generated as a result of ACR 2022. That included daily recaps, topic panels, topic reports, day one, day two, day three podcasts, topic podcasts like Spa, Lupus, RA, Tick, Jack, whatever. Again, there's a ton of stuff there to listen to. I hope you haven't um, been bored by any of it and found it informative. I've been listening to them and found them generally pretty good. Um, Of course, I'm not on there, so... Um, how good can they be? Well, actually, they're really good. Our faculty, I must say, they've got the gift of gab. They have good delivery. They can get to the point. Um, kudos to them for all those efforts. And yeah, do some cherry picking on those podcasts according to your interests. Uh, we've had a lot of news that that has been accumulating, and we started reporting it uh, at the end of last week and into this week. We'll go over some of that today. Um, I think the big news that I want to start with is what's going on in rheumatology fellowships. How is the match going? The NRMP announced its results this week. Um, All of the, you know, the residents and soon-to-be fellows are excited about where they're going. The data was good and bad and not that different from last year, 2021. What we saw is an adult rheumatology fellowships where there's a total of 272 positions. There were 371 applicants. Great. And we almost filled 100%. It was 97.8 were filled, and that was filled by about 40% U.S. grads. Um, But that means we have a serious, big excess of people interested in adult rheumatology for which we do not have training positions. What? But it's a different story in pediatric rheumatology where there's a dire need. There are some states that have no pediatric rheumatologists. There are some states where you have to drive 500 miles to see a pediatric rheumatologist. And in the match that we had where there were 39 positions available, there were only 29 who applied. And they all pretty much filled those spots. And they so the match... It was only 69% successful, meaning that we had a, a dearth of interest. Um, mo- the people who did go into pediatric rheumatology, almost 60%, 55% U.S. grads. Bottom line is we need, you know, we could expand uh, our rheumatology manpower by expanding adult rheumatology fellowship programs, new programs and expansion of existing programs especially the good ones. Why is that not happening? Manpower is a gigantic need. You know, the, 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 the global burden of musculoskeletal care in the future is not going to be met. And we need smart people right now being very proactive. Uh, talk to your people locally. Talk to the people at the ACR. We got to do what we can. And that means you have to do some training or you have to chip in some dollars or you have to do whatever, but this is going to be a gigantic problem in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years 
long after I'm gone, maybe even after you're gone. Uh, IL-2 in low doses has been used to correct autoimmune disease in a number of different states with some variable uh, efficacy. We reported about six months ago about the results of a low-dose IL-2 study in systemic lupus, refractory disease that looked really well. Likewise, we have a report this week of low-dose IL-2 in patients who have um, active um, uh, non-responsive Sjogren's syndrome. Uh, and again, the dosing was about the same. The drug was well tolerated. It was proven to be efficacious as measured by the SDI, the E-S-S-D-A-I, disease activity. There are, there are other um, developing disease activity measures in, in Sjogren's. Um, this was, but this was a small phase two, 60 patients. Um, the endpoint was 24 weeks. So far, everything that's been tried in Sjogren's fails um, in the long run. Uh, and the question is, can you really resurrect um, uh, exocrine uh, function uh, in, in, a, in, in those glands that have been damaged by inflammation previously? Is there evidence of ongoing damage? In some patients, there are, and so much, so much so that they even evolve into cancer. But that's not the average person. I'm not a big proponent of, of, of a lot of these trials, but I, I know many of you are, and we wait with hope. But... The message continues to be almost as bleak as other things that we have problems with, like, scler like scleroderma or even worse, osteoarthritis. I don't know if it's even worse. It's certainly more numerous. It's certainly not more worse. Um, uh, in the derm literature, a fairly large trial of rituximab versus azathioprine or mycophenolate in patients with pemphigus, over 1,600 patients. Rituximab, basically, uh, the, again, while these worked, um, it showed that um, rituximab lowered the risk of myocardial infarction significantly. It also lowered the risk of, uh, of stroke, peripheral vascular disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, obesity. Mortality was equal between the groups, but rituximab seemed to be more effective than the DMARD therapies, thiopin or mycophenolate. Um, and I don't know if you treat Pemphigus, I have been called into service working with my derm colleagues to treat it. And yeah, rituximab has worked very well for me. Um, I have even tried a few on other off-label indications like JAKS, but we need to see more data on that. Anyway, good news on rituximab in Pemphigus. Uh, I do follow some of the um, regulatory news and some of the financial news in rheumatology, not of the strength of this particular website and podcast. But I found some numbers to be interesting of late. That includes what's the worldwide market or in drug sales for disease-modifying drugs. That includes conventional, targeted synthetic, and biologics. It's almost $21 billion in 2022, estimated to go as high as $27.2 billion by the year 2030. Um, I think it's actually... Other estimates say it could be as much as a $50, $60 billion market. But nonetheless, I'll put this up so that you know that you, the rheumatologist, command control over what is a gigantic industry. So um, consider that as evidence of your importance and impact. Similarly, a recent, another recent estimate about the market size in systemic lupus erythematosus therapy, that's estimated to be about $1.5 billion in 2022. 
Um, and again, these numbers are worldwide, really looking at seven major continents um, and drug sales. We're not looking at what's going on in Nepal and, um, and Grenada because there's not much going on there for those who are financially um, concerned. But the interesting thing about this number is that uh, in lupus is they estimate the worldwide prevalence, prevalence of lupus to still only be 651,000 people and the U.S. prevalence of 351,000 in the United States. That's not far off. It's certainly more than some of the numbers we've seen recently, which are hover around 300,000. So it kind of backs that up. Uh, a study of RA patients um, and joint progression was very interesting recently. This was done in um, uh, also in psoriatic arthritis, but in this particular study, they looked at 55 RA patients who had serial x-rays over time uh, and a total of 1,207 joints. And they looked at what happened to x-rays compared to other measures and what predicted x-ray progression. They found a Doppler signal on ultrasound, threefold increased odds of progression if that was present. Presence of erosions, not surprisingly, would increase the risk of future um, damage and progression almost fivefold. But you know, the interesting thing about this particular report was that if you just had joint tenderness, but no joint swelling, even that predicted radiographic progression in RA patients and, and that was significant in RA, uh, and also in PSA patients, although it was marginally or hardly or barely significant. But again, the odds ratios with RA were 1.85 higher risk, or 85% higher risk. I found that surprising. I always thought a swollen joint is the joint that's going to get damaged and progress. But here this says that, heck, even tender joints might go that same route. Uh, the Mayo Clinic has looked at, and I don't know if I reported this, it sounds familiar to me, I might have looked at it and not reported, but they looked at, um, from the uh, Olmstead County and surrounding eight counties, the incidence of lupus nephritis between um, 1976 and, this is what, 25, almost 45 years, and showed that there's an increasing risk or rate of lupus nephritis that's increased uh, in each of the last four decades. The numbers are lower, lower. But overall, if you develop lupus nephritis, you're going to have poorer outcomes, higher rates of end-stage renal disease, and higher mortality rates. Patients who had uh, lupus nephritis had a 10-year survival of 70% and a 13% risk of developing ESRD, end-stage renal disease, in the time of observation. Another study about lupus looked at this question that is not a question for you and I. Does hydroxychloroquine cause an increased risk of cardiovascular events? This is all that nonsense that occurred during COVID. And of course, we know that not to be true. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. Well, this was a fairly well done study looking at um, uh, almost 300 patients on hydroxychloroquine for nearly 15 years. Um, and their primary endpoint, they compared those on hydroxychloroquine to those not on hydroxychloroquine. Um, and their primary endpoint was a cardiovascular endpoint of, of incident heart failure with a low ejection fraction, a new arrhythmia, or cardiac death. Well, they found 13% developed this primary endpoint, which I still find to be really high, but it turns out it's the same number that was seen in those not on hydroxychloroquine. So after adjustments and weight-based dosing of hydroxychloroquine, it was not associated with a higher rate of these cardiovascular events. 
In fact, if anything, it was a little bit lower with a 38% lower risk. Odds ratio, hazard risk, actually hazard ratio of 0.62 with the confidence intervals of 0.41 and 0.92. So it did not increase it as everyone was all freaking out about during COVID. And that these, this decreased risk was largely seen in non-smokers. So congratulations, hydroxychloroquine continues to be a kick-butt drug. A new drug on the horizon is a BTK inhibitor, evobrutinib, and we've reported on that recently. Uh, again, this is still in play. Um, this particular report looked at the safety of evobrutinib in uh, multiple phase two randomized control trials done in RA, multiple sclerosis, and lupus patients, over a thousand patients, um, and they showed no difference in treatment, adverse events between placebo and evobrutinib, two deaths in amongst 1,083, an SIE rate of two to three per 100 patient years, that's low. Um, again, evobrutinib is still in play because its safety profile still looks good, BTK inhibitor. JAMA um, has a nice review article about hemochromatosis, its diagnosis and treatment. It's a nice read. You should look at it. As you know, There's um, we often do HFE testing, but there are five gene de defects that lead to, that affect hepcidin. 95% um, of this is actually uh, the HFE C2A2Y variant. Um, it turns out that, you know, you find this by looking for it because 90% of patients with hemochromatosis are asymptomatic. And you really have to consider this in people who have arthralgias, that's all your patients, LFTs, paddlemegaly, cardiomyopathy, a first degree relative that's untreated. Those people have a 9%, uh, sorry, if they're untreated and they have hemochromatosis, there's a 9% future risk of developing cirrhosis. I like screening for hemochromatosis, you know, especially with degenerative changes in MCP2 and 3, with hook osteophytes and et cetera. Um, I got to say, you know, I spent way too many years trying to find thyroid disease as the cause of musculoskeletal complaints. Uh-uh. It never happens. I know you're going to tell me it does. I'm sorry. I've seen 10,000 more patients than you, and I can count on two hands one hand maybe, the number of patients where the musculoskeletal complaint was due to hypothyroidism. Never seen a hyperthyroidism. And I'm telling you, it's, you know, it's a bad screening test. But on the other hand, screening for hemochromatosis has an appreciable yield. Um, and I'm challenging you to prove me wrong. Um, I know you're going to prove me wrong when I tell you that you should all be doing telemedicine. I'm a big advocate for telemedicine. It's a game changer for you and your practice in the field of rheumatology. You can be more productive. Again, it is changing right now, but even before the potential legislative changes, um, we only see about 29% of Medicaid and Medicare users, users getting a telehealth visit. This is down almost 50% from a number of 46% in 2021. Big mistake, folks brush up and get better at tele telemedicine, especially televideo medicine, healthcare. So again, we went through 2022 and the whole scare that actually started in 2021 about JAK inhibitors and you know cardiovascular effects, cancer effects, VTE effects. What happens when you give a JAK inhibitor to patients with atopic dermatitis? 
Well, this very large meta-analysis um, looked at uh, atopic dermatitis patients who received JAK inhibitors, and what was the risk of VTE? 15 studies, almost a half million patients, no increase in VTE. A very low in incidence of VTE with JAK inhibitors, 0.05% on JAKs and 0.03% on placebo, basically zero and zero. So why do we see it in RA and, um, and SPA on our patients? I think it's because it's a, on a background of systemic inflammation. We know the inflammation is a big risk factor for VTE. It may in fact be augmented by a jack in people who have systemic active inflammation. Atopic dermatitis, you know, they got the scratchies and, and some red scaly spots, but systemic inflammation, a few, but not most. And maybe that's why it doesn't show up there. I don't know if you saw uh, last week, Artie Kavanaugh and I did Rheumatology Roundup. I think it's our 20th year doing it. It was a stellar session so far seen by over a thousand of your colleagues. It's available on the website and on our YouTube channel if you want to look at the video or it's available on the podcast if you'd like to listen to it. So we're going to end with a bunch of things related to COVID. Um, Yesterday, a report from MMWR about the efficacy of Pax, uh, Paxlovid when given for five days. Uh, uh, it had a 51% lower risk of hospitalization. Um, and and that did, it didn't matter whether the person um, never had COVID, previously had COVID, previously was vaccinated. It still showed a protective effect in patients who were newly test positive who got five days of Pax, Paxlovid. Are you giving it? A lot of my colleagues are. I have. Um, I think many of you are relegating this activity to you know, primary care or um, ID specialists. I don't think you should. I think that you got to jump on a newly diagnosed case, um, if you, especially if you want to prevent COVID, because you know what? There's still COVID out there. There are people who are dying still. The numbers are low. Time Magazine this week had a feature article called why masks matter. You can look on the web, on our website, click on the link, read the whole article. I must say it was a little bit of a disappointment because I expected them to come back with a lot of evidence, and he didn't. But they basically said COVID is still out there. Duh. Um, but more importantly, they said that influenza is on the rise, and masks would do for influenza what it did for COVID. So they conclude by saying with limited Yet mixed data, we would then recommend to err on the side of caution and use masking when, and when you're in high-risk, indoor, crowded, public settings. I don't use masks uh, all the time, but I still use masks. I, got, I actually went to uh, a hockey game last night, and I'm the only guy in the arena wearing a mask because I'm with 17,000 people who I don't know or trust. I still wear masks on planes. Um, if I'm just in my neighborhood and outside going into a store, probably not, but I probably, I'm still thinking I should. I still think we need to be cautious. Follow the numbers in your area as to whether you should be concerned about this or not. Um, a great read in yesterday's New England Journal from Anthony Fauci. Uh, it's sort of like his um, farewell uh, uh, opinion piece, if you will. Um, as you know, he has been... Uh, worked for the NIH for over 50 years, been the head of the NIAID division for uh, and its research for, I think, 38 years. Um, 
you know, he talked about Petersdorf saying we didn't need more ID people. And he talked about the um, unexpected outbreaks of infections that has bolstered the need for infectious disease specialists over the years that he is, uh, with whom he has trained many. And of course, he went through all the epidemics and, you know, from HIV to Ebola to now um, COVID. Uh, he advocates for specialty uh, um, growth uh, and not just in ID. He still marvels at the evolution of vaccine development time and the record-breaking less than six-month development of a COVID vaccine. Uh, and he invoked the um, quote from Yogi Berra when asked the question, how long is this going to last? You know, he used to say it ain't over till it's over, but now he's changing that to say it's probably never over, which means that we need vigilance, intelligence. Um, we need to be prepared. Uh, and I think that's his closing remarks. Great to be back with you. We'll do the podcast again next week. Be safe out there.